Ahasuerus is uh, more of a title. It's not an actual first name. Uh, most of the uh, commentators will say that this was Xerxes, the, the Greek or the Persian king. Um, his story, there was a movie out some months ago called The 300, or maybe it's a couple of years ago, I don't know. Um, and uh, this, he, Xerxes had the million-man army, and he marched against Greece, and 300 held him off. This is the guy. Ahasuerus is more of a title like Pharaoh. It's not a name, like president. So uh, most of the commentaries will say that this is King Xerxes. Um, and so here is King Xerxes in Persia, and he promotes a man named Haman the Agagite. Now, you pretty much know this is the bad guy if he's named Agagite. <laughs> no one can really have a good future if his name is Agagite. Um, and he's the son of Hamadatha, and they advanced him and set him his throne above all the officials with him. And the king's servants at the king's gate bowed down and paid, paid homage to him. For, verse 2 says, the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Verse 3. Then the king's servants at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? When they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman to see whether his words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. He cannot bow down. He's uh, uh, one of the uh, Ten Commandments is you don't bow down to any image made in heaven or in earth. It's in the Ten Commandments. So the last thing Mordecai wants to do at this point is violate the Ten Commandments. Which, though, why is he in Persia? I mean, when you begin to read, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Up until this point... Um, he evidently has not considered the covenant with God a point to ponder. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10 says, Esther had not made known to her people or kindred uh, that she was Jewish, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Up uh, From chapter 1 and 2, Mordecai is not that into being Jewish. But something happens in chapter two, 3, that causes him to all of a sudden decide, I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to come out and let it be known. I'm Jewish. I'm part of the people of God. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background um, here. There are these uh, four main characters, um, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, and then there's Haman. He's the kind of second in command, and everybody's supposed to bow down to him. And then there's Mordecai, which is, looks like it's misspelled. Um, but he's the Jewish man 
who is in Persia because all the Jews are in captivity in Persia. And then there's Esther. That's his uh, little cousin who is a lot younger than him. Her parents have evidently died when the Persians or the Babylonians came down and captured Israel and deported them all the way back to Persia. In fact, give me that, uh, give me the map. I think there's a, uh, this, this, you can see where Israel here is on your left. Then all the way, the whole land mass, all the way to the Persian Gulf is where they are. And the capital is Susa, the capital of Persia. And this is where Mordecai and Esther are. You couldn't be farther from home. This would be the, almost the fullest extent conceivable for a Jew to be that far back, to be that far away. Um, why are they there? Well, because Babylon and Persia had come down, destroyed Judah because of, remember when Solomon had all these idols and all these wives and he had fallen into sin? God brought an army in and judged them and deported all the people. And so he, they're there captives. They're refugees. And there's a little cluster of books after they've been there about 60 or 70 years. There's a little cluster of books that talk about after that exile, after that deportation. What is it like and what do they do? Let me just uh, give you these. Um, there is uh, Nehemiah, and I think we, you can pull those up. Uh, there's Nehemiah, uh, no, back the other way. Nehemiah, Haggai, uh, two little prophets. Go ahead and, go ahead and give me those. Um, Haggai, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, and uh, then there's Mordecai and Esther. Nehemiah is a book that's written about how he comes back from Persia and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra comes back and rebuilds the temple. But now Ezra uh, pops up right in the middle of the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah and Ezra are contemporaries. They are they are, uh, are almost the same age, live at almost the same time, doing almost the same work except Nehemiah's the walls, Ezra's the temple. Now, the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they, are, they predict things to encourage Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah's rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, but they're discouraged. People are quitting. The land, the surrounding people are coming and trying to stop them, threatening them with death. And then in comes Zechariah and Haggai and says, Haggai says, keep going because God is going to cause the wealth of nations to come to you. Zechariah comes in in chapter 2 of Zechariah verse 7 and he says, keep going, keep building, keep praying, keep working because many people are going to be converted and become Jews. And Ezra and Nehemiah is listening to this and said, okay, we'll keep going. So they are helped, according to Ezra 5.1, they are helped by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And, and, uh, and, 
meanwhile, up in Persia, Mordecai and Esther are still in captivity. They haven't gone back. Because most of the people at this point in Esther have not returned to Jerusalem. The exile is over. They can go home. The king said they could. But uh, most of them stay up there. They've been up there 70 years. They've got homes. They've got property. They've got businesses. They've got land. They've got their children and grandchildren and grandparents, and it's hard to just move everything back. So most of them are still up there. Uh, by the way, uh, modern-day Persia, uh, ancient Persia, is modern-day Iran. What was once Persia is modern-day Iran. So the Jews were up in what is today Iran. And that would, was no greater then than it is, would, be, would be now. So you have this, these little cluster of books that all come together and talk about this post-exile period of time. I was um, in the Henry Ford Hospital down in Detroit a couple of years ago, and uh, it was in August, and uh, I saw a sign that says, this office is closed commemorating Tish Ba'av. Um, and if you ever see in, the, in August you'll, these little signs that it is Tish Ba'av is the Jewish commemoration of the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the temple in 586 and when they were hauled off to Persia. They never fully recovered and they have ever since then had an annual in August um, time of grieving for that destruction called Tishbaah, and they still do it today. In fact, every Jewish wedding, they'll take a little wine glass and throw it down and stomp on it because it is to depict that, the, that there's in every life, every Jewish life, there is a sorrow and a loss of joy because of that destruction. Now, this is, this is where they found themselves now. And uh, Haggai chapter uh, 2, verse 4 says, Be strong, he says, and uh, all you people of the land declares the Lord work, for I am with you. And he says, The, uh, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, I'm going to shake all nations, and the wealth of nations will come to you, and I will fill this house with glory. And then in uh, Zechariah 2.11, and many nations are going to be joined to the Lord in this day. There's going to be a shaking. Keep going, keep praying. There's going to be a shaking, a joining, a conversions. There's going to, I'm going to cause wealth to start coming to you. This, this were the predictions of these prophets. One of the prophets during this time, also the longest one was Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is also up there in Babylon as a refugee, and he views the people. He looks out over the people, and they just seem so hopeless. And Ezekiel has this vision of his people in exile, his people in captivity in the 600 years before Christ. And Ezekiel 37, verse 2, says that he, God took me and he gave me this vision of this valley of dry bones. 
it's like a bunch of skeletons just scattered all through this valley. And he looks out, and God comes to Ezekiel the prophet, and he says, Ezekiel, look at all these, this, uh, all these skeletons. He said, do you think these can live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. In other words, if you want to do it, they can live. If you don't do it, they're not going to live. And then uh, God tells Ezekiel this. This is in Ezekiel 37, verse 11. Give me that uh, 30, Ezekiel 37, verse 11. This is what they were saying in the 6th century B.C., before Christ. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost we're all cut off. The nation of Israel in Ezekiel's day said, we're done for. Yes, I know Ezra's down there. Ezra rebuilt that temple, but have you read the book of Ezra? They rebuilt the temple, and then they looked at it, and some of the older people remembered the other one. And what did they do? They cried. <laughs> That's got to be a great finish to a building program. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, instead of celebration, it was so dinky. Every, they, the older people started crying. And nobody was going down to help them. All the people were staying up in captivity. And, uh, uh, and God says to Ezekiel, he says, what do you think of the Jewish nation right now? When you look at them, and he, he says, well, here's what they're saying. We're hopeless. Our hope is gone. We're cut off. We're dead. We're not only dead, we're decayed. Our bones are dried. We just haven't been buried. Now, that's where they were at this point in history. Now, to illustrate this, the book of Esther is written. To illustrate the helplessness and the hopelessness of the people of God in Zechariah, Haggai, Ezra, and Nehemiah's day, and in Esther's day, and Ezekiel's day, and Daniel's day. Daniel's up there. And to illustrate their hopelessness, the book of Esther is written. There is no mention of God in the book of Esther. You ever read the book of Esther? Never mentioned, out of all the 66 books in the Bible, Esther is the only one where God's name is not mentioned. And there's like eight or nine chapters. Why? Because they're not mentioning God. They're not mentioning their Jews. They're not, they're, uh, when Esther has an opportunity to marry the king, she jumps right into bed with him. She has no reservations. You read the book of Esther, and King Xerxes has this beauty contest and says, I want to marry the prettiest girl in the, in the province. She doesn't tell him she's Jewish, because that would be a disqualifying factor. And he says, I pick you. And she says, okay. And becomes part of, her, of his harem. And there is not a bit of reservation in this book that says that she resisted it. You know what she wanted when it came time for her to be taken into the king? She wanted her cosmetic bag. And you can read that story. 
The people of God had lost their distinctiveness, their confession, their faith. They had lost their passion for God and his kingdom and his worship. Their temple's destroyed. Their identity is gone. And so Mordecai says, look, let's just blend. Let's fade into the background. We don't want to be picked on. We don't want to be pointed out. We don't want to sign anything or sing anything. They wanted them in Psalm 137. They said, why don't you guys sing us one of the songs of Zion? David made you these harps to praise him. Bring those harps that Dave, that, that this great king of music made and sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they said, Psalm 137, uh, our captors demanded songs of joy, and, but we said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in this strange land? They lost their ability to worship and sing and praise God. But now something happens in chapter 3. And here's the way I see this. Mordecai, who's an older man, has begun to feel convicted. He's, he hates not being a faithful Jew, and it's getting to him. And then one day, there's this new law. Mordecai, did you hear about this law? What? Haman has been elevated, and they want all of us to bow down to him. And Mordecai says, that is it. I cannot do that. And I'm not going to do it. Whoa, whoa, that's the king's command, Mordecai. Why aren't you doing it? And Mordecai says, All right, I'm going to tell you, I'm Jewish. Ah, ooh. Aren't you like, uh, ooh, one of those fanatics? You believe your God's the only true God? Yeah. And you have the only Bible? Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. That's what I thought. And in Esther chapter 3, Mordecai becomes obedient and goes public. Now that is what happens in chapter 3. And when he does, it triggers a series of events which ultimately fulfills the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. What I'm speaking to you now this morning is, when you begin to obey God, what will happen? The value of obeying God, um, especially when you go public with it, There's something about being public. I, I just um, um, was reading this week about uh, Tim Tebow, the quarterback for Denver Broncos. Uh, one guy writes that 
few stories have captivated the sports world like Denver Bronco quarterback Tim Tebow with his unorthodox playing style, last-minute heroics, and his knack for on-field prayers. Have y'all, uh, y'all know who I'm talking about, Tim Tebow? We got, we got a picture of him. Yes, there he is. Um, Sports Illustrated magazine came out with this statement. Tim Tebow is one of the most polarizing figures in NFL history. That was the first statement in his Sports Illustrated um, column on Tim Tebow. Most most polarizing figures in history. Um, I would have thought maybe LeBron James or Tiger Woods. Uh, The Austin Sports News out of Austin, Texas, begins their column on Tim Tebow by saying this, there is no more polarizing figure in sports today than Denver Broncos quarterback Tim Tebow. Really? Said people fall into two camps, those who love him, those who hate him. If you go on Facebook and you type in you know how in the little search line, you type in somebody's name and it shows, finds them for you? Type in, I hate Tim Tebow. It'll give you a whole page. There's like two or three different I hate Tim Tebow Facebook pages. Uh, why do they hate Tim Tebow? They don't even know Tim Tebow. Uh, you know, he's the guy that prays on the field and he wears John 3.16 under his eyes. Sid Ziegler, the editor of Outsports.com, wrote these words. He said, I hate Tim Tebow. Hate is a strong word, maybe despise, vehemently dislike. I hate that guy. And I hate him more when he wins. It's not the outcome of the game, though, that makes him my most hated athlete in the world. It's what he does after the game. He says, first and foremost, I must thank the Lord, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then he continues to write. He says, he tells Deion Sanders after one game that he can't worry about what other people think because he can't control what they think. Yes, he can, says Ziegler. He can shut up about his religion. There are many wonderful Christians and Muslims and Jews who practice their religion the way it's meant to be practiced, in private. Ah. So here's, before I go on, look at chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. But he would he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known in the people, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. He said it made Haman so angry that he would that he would go public with his religion that he said I'm not just going to have Mordecai killed. I'm going to kill every Jew. I'm going to kill his children. I'm going to kill his relatives. I'm going to kill his aunts and uncles. I'm going to kill everybody that's kin to him. 
That's how mad he was. Why? He became obedient in public. Uh, it's the equivalent of some sports editor saying, Mordecai, shut up. Just stay behind the scenes. I don't want to see your religion, and I don't want to hear it. Can we do that? And the answer to that is what you get in the book of Esther. Life and circumstances and society will not permit a Christian ultimately to stay quiet about the Savior Jesus Christ. Ultimately, you're going to be exposed as a Christian or a hypocrite. It's going to come out. This is what the book of Esther is about. Now, my, what I want to give to you this morning is why you should obey. Why begin to obey? And you get it in, in Mordecai. In a time when... God's people had faded into the background. They had lost their identity. They had lost their hope. They were like skeletons. There was, there was nothing. Only God could do something. All of a sudden, one old man begins to just obey God in public no matter what it cost. And three things begin to happen. Let me give I think we've got these. Number one, when Mordecai began to obey, number one, hearts were revealed. All of a sudden, an enemy pops up, Haman, that wasn't an enemy before. It's going to be very difficult for you to truly get serious with God and begin to obey Him without making somebody mad. Because here's the thing, when you haven't been obedient for a while, you're your family and friends and neighbors and society and job all become accustomed to who you are. Then, all of a sudden, you begin to get radical and, and obedient to God, fully obedient in public. You become known as a Christian. Okay, that's going to mess up some people. Now, you don't do what you did before. You don't go with us like you used to go with us. What's going on with you? Here's the way Peter put it. Let me just jump over here real quick and read this to you. But um, this, this is not a new phenomenon in the Old Testament. Um, this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. To live the rest of our time in the flesh... Uh, we should not live the rest of our time in the flesh for human passions, but rather for the will of God. For the time that has passed is sufficient for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, living in passion, living in drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And they are surprised when you do not join them in this same flood of debauchery. And so they malign and accuse you. They are surprised by that. Wait a minute. 
all of a sudden now you're a Christian, you're religious, you follow Jesus. And, and, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I don't want to disturb them. I don't want to bother them. And it's very difficult when you had a pattern of disobedience to suddenly begin to obey God. And you'll be surprised at some people who suddenly will become an enemy that you didn't know was an enemy and who will become a friend that you didn't know was a friend. It will reveal hearts. Let me give you a second thing. In When Mordecai begins to obey, heroes are made. Look over at uh, chapter 4. Uh, maybe I should say with this particular one, a heroine or a heroine, uh, a heroess. Uh, Esther is who I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Esther chapter 4. Mordecai begins to obey, and then guess what she does? She's, Mordecai now tells her, you know how I told you not to be, not to let people know you're Jewish? Okay, now you need to let them know you're Jewish. Because she has married Xerxes. But Xerxes does not know that she's Jewish. That she's, she was a captive. He just thought she was pretty. And he says, would you be my queen? He, she says, Okay. And now Mordecai goes to her, this is in chapter 4, verse 12, and says, well, you know, now Haman's trying to kill every one of the Jews. Now you need to go to King Xerxes, and you need to tell him you're Jewish and stand up for your people. And Esther's like, whoa, whoa, uh, Mordecai, you realize you don't just, see, today, if you want to go see your husband, you just walk in. You don't have to knock on the door or get a written permission slip to have access to your husband, right? Not so in Persia. In the 6th century, you had to go through red tape and three committees and, and uh, get uh, advance notice because he is the king. And uh, then you might be permitted to walk into his office, into his throne room. Well, she's, and if you did try to enter his throne room without permission, you, it didn't matter if you're the queen, you'd be killed on the spot. And Mordecai says, we don't have time for you to jump through all the hoops and do the bureaucracy. You've got to go straight to the king. You got to tell him you're Jewish. That's a shock. You got to do it without permission. Shock number two. And you got to say that you're being, your life and the life of your family is threatened. Shock number three. She says, if I do that, I'll perish. He says, and here's what it's a great speech Mordecai gives to Esther in chapter 4, verse 13. Mordecai said to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape more than any other Jews. In other words, you're not safe just because you're there. Verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, don't think that you're the only option God's got, <laughs> right? God's able to raise up some other deliverer. And then number three, he says, 
And who knows but whether or not you have come to the kingdom, verse 14, for such, just such a time as this. In other words, Esther, you need to realize you're not safe. You think because you're in the palace you're safe? You're not safe. You're safer on the front lines risking it all for Jesus Christ than you are hiding away in the palace. Your timidity and self-preserving instincts will not rescue you. And then he says, and you also need to know that you're not so special as the queen that God can't raise up somebody better than you, different from you, prettier than you, greater than you, and save his people. You're not just here uh, because you're the only option God has. You have an opportunity to be the instrument. And then finally... You need to know that all this money you've got, all this beauty that you've got, all these clothes you've got, all this access to the king you've got, you need to know all of that has come into your life at just the right point in history, not for you. It's to rescue your people. Providence and destiny have come together into your life. And you are a steward of all this. Uh, and I would just say to, to the ladies who are beautiful out there to this morning, and there are many of you out there who are beautiful, did you know your beauty is for Jesus Christ and his kingdom's sake? Your beauty can get you an audience, can get you a conversation that you cannot normally have. And husbands, men, young men, did you know you're being handsome? Have you ever considered that being handsome is to be used for God? I have. I've considered that in my own life. <laughs> okay, some of you were the first to laugh. But this is what, this is tremendous speech. And Esther is like, all right, I'll go. And if I perish, then I perish. Oh, man, I like that. See, uh, what she has, what Mordecai's obedience and passion that went public has suddenly done is it's produced a hero that an entire book is written about. And to this day, they celebrate Esther in the Jewish households. When you begin to obey, a hero is formed. Hearts are revealed, heroes are formed because someone's passion will be sparked and someone's commitment will be triggered by your obedience. They will follow you. It could be a child, it could be a neighbor, it could be a friend, it could be a, anybody. A third thing is history has changed. History changes when we start to obey God. Um, do you remember I was talking about some of those predictions of the prophets that they sort of, down in Israel, they had returned and they had sort of become uh, stymied? And the building of the temple had ceased. The building of the city had ceased. People had stopped moving back. 
But the predictions of Zechariah, many will be joined to the Lord. Oh, the one on Ezekiel. Here's what Ezekiel chapter 37 says. Now, this is the same time frame. Ezekiel said this, you see these dry bones, these dead bones? What do you think can happen? Ezekiel said, Lord, you know. He said, proclaim the word to them. So he prophesied to them, and they, the bones began to come together. The bones began to form skin. This, this is weird stuff in Ezekiel 37. And they began shaking around, and Ezekiel starts heading for the hills. <laughs> no, that was if I was there watching this. No, but Ezekiel's watching them, and, 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 the, and everything starts happening. Breath goes into them. And it says, and they were raised up as an exceeding mighty army. Now, look in, at Esther um, chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, because Esther does go to the king. Esther does make her appeal. The king Xerxes does respond by saying, let all the Jews go out and defend themselves against their enemies. And Esther chapter 9, verse 16, the rest of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered to defend their lives and they got relief from their enemies and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. A mighty army was formed. And 75,000 died in that battle. That's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. I'll tell you something else. You remember how we talked about Zechariah 2.11? Many Jews would be, uh, many would be converted to Judaism during this day. Well, look at Esther chapter 8 and verse 17. Uh, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Uh, Esther chapter 7 verse 16. The Jews were, had happiness and gladness and joy and honor. And verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command went, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, feasts and holidays, and many, same word as Zechariah, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Mass conversions. And the Jews formed a mighty army, and many said, whoa, that, that, they are the people of God. This is miraculous, and I, I want to be part of that. In Zechariah 8, same time frame, he says, Ten men will take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, let me become one because we've heard God is with you. Let me be one of you. Ten men means that they, ten is what it took to form a synagogue. They said, let's form a new synagogue. Do you know what a synagogue is? It's not a temple. Temples in Jerusalem, only one temple. Synagogues were formed in the exile as a fulfillment of the prediction of Zechariah and triggered by Mordecai's obedience in chapter 3. It changes history. There's something, there's the, a divine power unleashed when we begin to obey. History has changed. Now, let me just close with this. Don't be afraid of the risk don't look at how bad it is. Don't think you're too old. Mordecai was an older man. In fact, he'd already been down to 
Israel once, according to Ezra 2, 2. He'd already been down there once and came back up. He was old enough to adopt Esther. And don't think that you're too far from God. Remember that map I showed you? Remember where all the way down to Persia. Can you bring that map up one more time? All the way down here. To, there's no way. Now, go to the last slide, Julie, and show them this verse. This is a great verse. If you begin to obey, here's what Moses promised them. He said, you, you're in exile. You've been banished. But if you will begin to obey when God disperses you among the nations, and you and your children will return to the Lord with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. The Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord will gather you and bring you home again. That promise, I think, Mordecai got hold of. Persia is the most distant land. I can't imagine further. If there you will begin to obey, God will reverse the fortunes and your life and the life and history will change. That's my prayer for you today. Begin to obey.